Welcome to your shelf or mine live from the Longview Public Library. <laughs> I am Becky Standle, Youth Services Specialist here at the Longview Public Library. And I'm Elizabeth Partridge. What am I? You're the Adult Services Librarian. At the Longview Public Library. And we are joined here with by Jennifer King, a Youth Services Librarian, Chris Gogset, Library Director, and Austin Brigden. Library friend. employee. <laughs> <laughs> Austin works here. <laughs> oh. well, I just want to start off saying thank you to um, Josh Carter and our studio sponsors, KLOG Cooking Country and 1015 The Wave, who let us record our podcast in their studio um, twice a month. And who brought all of his equipment here so we could do this remotely. Thanks, Josh. We got a big thumbs up on that one. Yay. Good job. So you can listen to our podcast, Your Shelf or Mine, um, at our host site, which is Podbean. Um, you can access it through the library's website. And you can also download it on... Spotify. Spotify, Stitcher, iTunes, Google Podcasts, and anywhere you listen to podcasts. Mm -hmm. And if you don't listen to podcasts, you should listen to ours. At the very least. Just throwing that out there. If you don't know how, you know where I am. And I will teach you. Okay. Okay. So today we're going to talk about 20 or more. We'll see how many we can get That's through. That's a crazy number. Books that we recommend for you to read or for you to um, get as gifts for other people to read. We're going to start with the youngest level of books that we're recommending. And we're going to go through grown-up books. Books for grown-ups. We're even doing nonfiction. Mm -hmm. A lot of nonfiction. Quite a bit. So we will just jump right in and Jennifer will get us going. Hello. So the book that I chose, uh, at least to get us started, is a picture book and it's called Paper Sun. It's the inspiring story of Tyrus Wong, immigrant and artist. It's by Julie Lung and it's illustrated by Chris Sasaki. And um, it is the story of a boy who came over, immigrated um, to the U.S. from China in 1919 when the Chinese Exclusion Act was in full swing. So for the most part, if you were Chinese, you couldn't get in unless you um, could prove that you were of high status, you know, if you were a business person or a... Uh, merchant, scholar, you know, just special. Um, and so Tyrus's dad got some forged papers that said that he was a businessman and that Tyrus was his son. And so they came to the United States um, and on their way over, they, um, he had to memorize the story about who this boy was that he was pretending to be. So when they got here, he, you know, ma they made it in, but uh, dad had to, you know, they were, they were pretty poor. Dad had to find work 
um, and uh, but he loved to draw. And so his dad got him started. Um, they couldn't afford ink and, and special paper, so he would have him draw Chinese calligraphy on newspaper with uh, brush and water. And that was kind of, you know, how he amused himself. Eventually, his dad borrowed enough money for him to go to art school. And that's where he learned, you know, Western style of painting and drawing. And Becky's going to hold the book because I'm trying to figure out how to hold things. So anyway, he, yeah, he learned um, the Western style, but he also was very um, knowledgeable about the Chinese style, and he continued to study that. He ended up getting work as an in-betweener for the Disney Studios, and um, the in-betweener is a very actually boring job for an artist. They're the ones that fill in the scenes between the key scenes of Disney animation, so lots of repetitive over and over things. But the really interesting part of the story is that um, he ended up being a really instrumental part of um, a Disney, uh, like a groundbreaking film for his uh, backgrounds that he did for Bambi. And so it, it talks about his experience, um, what happened after that, and the rest of his life. Uh, it also, at the very end, um, has some more detailed, um, some pictures of who he was and you know how he lived out his life and, and why the author found him. It's a lot of, um, I would recommend it, Picture books actually are for everybody. This probably wouldn't be for like babies and you know little toddlers, but preschoolers, elementary, anybody that's interested in art, anybody that's interested in Disney, because this is a probably not a really well-known story. Um, and anybody who's seen Bambi, um, it's it's a really interesting um, interesting book. And uh, the art that you can see the art, the colors are great. It's just a beautiful book. And then next, I have a early reader book, and this is called Harold and Hogg Pretend for Real. I don't know if anybody, uh, anybody's uh, familiar with the Elephant and Piggy series, but this was a very popular beginning reader series by Mo Willem. You might also know Mo Willems for Don't Let the Pigeon Ride the Bus. Um, so the Elephant and Piggy series ended, but Mo Willems started, basically it's a publishing imprint, imprint um, called Elephant and Piggy Presents. So a lot of um, popular children's authors and illustrators um, do sort of elephant and piggy style beginning readers. And so this one is Harold and Hogg Pretend for Real. And um, it's pretty fun because the books all start out with Elephant and Piggy presenting the book. And so if you're familiar with what Elephant and Piggy look like. This particular book, it's kind of, I guess you could call this meta. I would. Um, because Harold and Hogg also happen to be an elephant and a pig, and they decide that they're going to dress up like Elephant and Piggy and tell their own story and be their own best friends. The problem is, in Elephant and Piggy, Piggy's the very carefree one of the two, and uh, Gerald, the elephant, is very careful. And so when um, Harold and Hogg uh, decide to be Elephant and Piggy, they find that their own personalities don't match. And it causes this big uh, crisis of, you know, how can they be friends? <laughs> um, of course, they do solve it in the end. 
and it's a fun book. I recommend this for anybody learning to read. And grown-ups, grown-ups usually appreciate Elephant Piggy books because they're they're very um, they're fun. I think they're a lot of fun. The humor is great. The art is great. Um, Pigeon makes a cameo appearance in this one, and it's just a fun book. So now, if you haven't it. if you haven't read the Elephant and Piggy books, those are some of my absolute favorite books. Yes. I forgot about that <laughs> yes. Pigeon cameo. <laughs> So silly. Okay. So the next books I'm going to be talking about, this first one is called Beavers, the Superpower Field Guide. It's by Rachel Poliquin. Um, And this is uh, the first book in a series of different superpower field guides to interesting animals. Um, I've also read the one on moles. Moles is pretty good, but I actually think beavers is better. And it um, is just full of really fun facts, really good for kids who like to say, like, did you know... I talked about this book for several weeks after I first read it in exactly that way. So I was like, did you know that um, beavers have like transparent eyelids that go like sideways across their eyes so they can see underwater? Yeah, (laughs) she did. And did you know that beavers have lips behind their front teeth so that they can hold a stick and swim at the same time without getting water in their mouths? They're amazing. And they eat their own poo. Yeah, yum so many really cool facts about beavers in this book um really good for kids into animals and science it has a really fun retro art style and is like kind of interactive there's quizzes in the book that ask lots of silly questions where the answer is like no why would that you know true or false beaver teeth are sharp enough to cut an alligator in half (laughs) (laughs) true no um it is true oh man it is. So these, <laughs> this book, I don't know if any of you have people that are in your life that like the Who Would Win books. I don't know if you've ever seen those. My son, he loves those. This kind of book, he would adore. So he's 11 in that yeah. range. And I think this one has kind of a, a wide range. Give it to someone like me. I would love it. And Linda. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. But also um, <laughs> kids still in elementary school and maybe even middle school too. Beavers, Superpower Field Guide. Um, my next one is called Making Friends. I recently had Daniel read this for his um, homework, and he loved it. <laughs> Big thumbs up. This is by Kristen Gudsnuck, um, and it is a middle grade comic book. So if you have readers you know who really like um, Raina Telgemeier or Victoria Jameson, they're like middle school um comic books this is a really kind of under the radar one and there's a sequel that has recently come out too um but this this book is hilarious it's about a girl whose um great aunt has recently died and the family is like fighting over the stuff that she left behind and she ends up being able to grab one of her old sketchbooks and when she takes it home she finds out that uh whatever she draws in the sketchbook comes to life when she draws like the head of an anime character she has a crush on and he like pops up in her bedroom (laughs) it's so funny um so it covers like a lot of like wish fulfillment stuff but she's also having problems in school with friends and so she ends up drawing herself a new best friend thinking that's going to solve all her problems um spoiler alert (laughs) it doesn't oh no it's really really funny and it's there's so many gags there's so many like background like gags in the background of the artwork too um i feel like you could read it several times and still see new jokes inside 
This next book I recommend is called Pumpkin Heads. This is also a graphic novel um, I would recommend for like middle school and high school. It's by Rainbow Rowell, who is New York Times bestselling author. Um, she does also the Runaway comics, and she's written lots of like book books too. And then the art is by Faith Erin Hicks. This um, takes place on Halloween over the course of just one night. These two friends have worked every fall in the same pumpkin patch together. It's like the Disneyland of pumpkin patches. There's a map on the end papers. And this is their last night at the pumpkin patch ever. So they decide they're going to really make it count. And so, let's see. This character's name is Josiah, and this is Deja. And Josiah's had a crush on the um, fudge shop girl for the last four years. And Deja's like, we're finally going to do something about it. Um, so they end up kind of going everywhere around the pumpkin patch looking for her. Um, lots of hijinks ensue. There's like a, a background gag throughout the book where there's a goat that's on the loose. They stop at several, like all of the different places. Kettle corn, Frito pies, s'mores, apple cider slushies, pumpkin bombs, which is a made-up food that sounds amazing. And um, it's just really fun. Cute, has a bit of romance in it, really fun, like seasonal book. I loved it a lot. Here's a little sneaky peek of the inside. Yeah. Anything that has romance in it, you can pretty much rest assured that Becky will have loved it a lot. Well, that's not necessarily true. <laughs> Almost. Um, and then this book is checked out, so I just printed a picture. I was going to bring my copy from home, but I forgot. Um, this one is called Skyward. It's by Brandon Sanderson. Um, if you don't read children's and teen books, you might also know him because he writes a lot of adult fantasy and science fiction as well. Um, Skyward is the first book in a four-book series. Um, the second one is coming out next week. So, But uh, it takes place on a... Um, on a different planet that like the people who live there had to like crash land on this planet and then like make an underground community there and they're constantly under attacked by a different by like an alien race that they don't really nothing about other than the fact that they keep attacking them and they've been fighting these people for years and years um, the main character's name is Spensa and her father had been a fighter pilot fighting the aliens and had turned traitor and uh, was killed in battle and she's been kind of living under that shadow ever since she dreams of also becoming a fighter pilot but um, the school that she would have to attend they don't take her seriously they don't want her there and so she faces a lot of challenges she's eventually able to get into the flight school because one of the instructors takes her on um, and she finds like a like an old abandoned spaceship that's kind of hidden away that she can live in because they won't let her live in the dorms they think it's like uh, only a matter of time before she turns on everybody else. It has like a really good reveal at the end of this one. It really makes you want to read the second one. And I think in a satisfying way, there's no like cliffhanger, but it definitely makes you want to keep reading. It reminded me a lot of Ender's Game. There's a lot of like fight scenes. There's a lot of action and a little bit kind of, of divergent in the way that she's like trying to make friends and fit in and everybody is like trying to show how brave they are. That sounds good. It is good. You would like that. There's I think no I would like that one, actually. romance. Yay! So if you know a teen reader who's like, I don't want any romance in my books, you can give them that one. Yeah, this, that one sounds fun, actually. This headset's too big. <laughs> <laughs> and um, the last book I wanted to recommend is called Picture Us in the Light. And this was one of my favorite books I read last year. 
there isn't really very much romance in this one either. It's kind of like promised at the end for the future. Um, this is a really character-driven story, so there's like a lot of stuff going on, but the real focus is on the main character. Um, his name is Danny Chang. He's a senior at a high school in Cupertino, California, and he's and his family are kind of um, lower middle class in a community where everyone else is really wealthy, and that kind of plays into the story quite a bit. His parents are Chinese immigrants, and he had an older sister who died before he was born. He thinks about that quite a bit. Um, and then also before the story starts, he had had a friend who died um, in that also. So he's got kind of like these ghosts that haunt him. But at the very beginning of the book, he finds out that he's been accepted to Rhode Island School of Design, and his parents are really supportive. They're really excited because he got a big enough scholarship that even if they can't help financially, he'll still be able to go. But he is keeping secret from them and everybody else that he hasn't been able to really draw anything since his friend had died the year before. He's also keeping a secret that um, he's in love with his best friend, Harry. He ends up finding in his house this box of things of his parents that they've been hiding from him, secrets that have to do with the sister he keeps thinking about that they don't want to talk to him about. Um, and as he is like just starting to dig into whatever secret that they're keeping from him, his father loses his job and they have to leave their house and move to a different city. And they're just kind of telling him to, to move on and he just can't let it go. Um, so it really explores like a lot of friendship issues with his grief over his friend, um, a lot of family issues with the secret that they're keeping and him figuring it out, um, and then all of the stuff that you think about and that happens to you when you're just finishing high school and starting out on your own. I just love this book so much. It's so good, you guys. You should read it. <laughs> this isn't the first time she's brought this book up, so she really, you should really read this, this book. book. <laughs> um, if you've read... I think it's got like a similar quality to, um, if you've read Aristotle and Dante, Discover the Secrets of the Universe by Benjamin Allaire's Signs, or anything by Celeste Ng, kind of that style, they're really good. Yeah, yeah, and, and it's a discovery book, so if you have anybody who's in that transition kind of age range, it's a good book for discovering. And it helps kind of help, you know, when you can't articulate what you're going through, it's nice to have a story that you can refer back to to help you maybe find some words. Mm -hmm. Can I have that microphone? You want this microphone? Yes, I do, because I'm going to pass it on. Did you turn it off? It's okay. turning on. I think mm -hmm. it just turned itself off. Push the button. Excuse me, I'll, I'll do this. <laughs> all right, the mic is working now. We can I say because we're live. Yeah. Daniel cuts all our best jokes. There's <laughs> <laughs> yeah. probably a good reason for that. <laughs> all right, I'm here to talk. We're going to move into some more adult titles now. I'm going to combination of fiction and nonfiction. The first one I have is The Dinner List by Rebecca Searle. It's uh, put that up there now, but we had it there. Came out in 2018. At one point or another in our lives, most of us have been asked the, some variation of the question, if you could name five people, living or dead, to join you for dinner, whom would those people be and why? Searle's novel is the written manifestation of that game, Conversation Starter. Our protagonist, Sabrina, arrives at an elegant restaurant on her 30th birthday. Seated at the table are her best friend, Jessica, her father, her ex-boyfriend, Tobias, her former philosophy professor, and Audrey Hepburn. While the novel's premise may seem lighthearted and fun, this is a rather serious read as Sabrina struggles to understand why her father left her family when she was five years old, tries to work through her strained relationship with Jessica, 
and examines her decade-long relationship with Tobias. The author moves easily between the past and the present, alternating with each chapter in this magical, realistic examination of love, loss, and living with our memories. I was captivated by this, what I call a bittersweet existential story. I read it in pretty much one sitting. While literary novels often look at the issues of love, loss, and memory, this author took a more playful direction while never losing sight of these big three issues. Throw in a little tension and relief with Audrey Hepburn and you keep churning the pages. Ultimately, I enjoyed the way that Searle created a magical, realistic love story, coming-of-age mashup that not only told a poignant tale, but also did it in a rather delightful and very readable way. People who might enjoy this book will be those who like novels with big questions and big ideas, especially if you don't mind them being dealt with in a non-traditional way. And those who like bittersweet love stories, especially if they're a little fantastic, they like a little fantastic in their fiction. So all those people should like this book. I know Becky liked this I book. I really like this book. And I also say, I think this is her first adult novel. Rebecca I, Searle came from the uh, young adult world. From Becky's world. Yeah, from my world. <laughs> So I definitely recommend that for, for people who like fiction. My next one is also a fiction. It's the one up here in the front right here. It's called The Calculating Stars by Mary Kowal. It came out in 2018. It's the start of a series that's coming out called The Lady Astronauts. Imagine a different history, one that differs from our own, starting on a cold spring night in 1952. A huge meteorite falls to the earth and obliterates much of the east coast of the United States, including Washington, D.C. Not unlike the dinosaurs before us, this cataclysmic event will ultimately lead to the end of humanity. The only hope humanity has from this looming climatic threat is a radically accelerated effort to colonize space, one that will require a much larger share of humanity to take part in the process. Our protagonist, Elma York's experience as a WASP pilot and a mathematician earns her a place in the International Aerospace Coalition's attempts to put the man on the moon. She is there as a calculator. However, with so many skilled and experienced women, pilots and scientists involved with the program, it doesn't take long before Elma and the other women begin wondering why they can't be the first into space. Elma's drive to become the first lady astronaut is so strong that even the most dearly held conventions of society might not stand up against her. This is, as I mentioned before, this is the first in a series uh, by Mary Roll. I am a big fan of alternate history myself, and I'm a big fan of books about the beginnings of the space program. When you throw in a wonderful female protagonist who you can easily relate to and can't help but root for, you get a book that is not only very good, but good enough to win the Nebula Award, which is the awarded each year by the Science Fiction Writers Association for Best Novel, and that happened just this year. It probably goes without saying that if you like hidden, the hidden figures, the book, or the movie, you will like this book. Uh, also, fans of alternate history, such as Harry Turtledove's books, uh, will, should like the historical world building as well. So if you're into that sort of alternate, what, would, what could have happened, what might have happened, this definitely is a book that you should like. My next one, which I know I don't have a, it here because it's always checked out, is Educated, a memoir by Tara mm. Westover. Came out also last year. Looks like that. <laughs> But we just said we don't. That one's and it's been checked out pretty consistently for the last year and a half or so oh, since it came yeah. out. Oh. Okay, Tara Westover was 17 the first time she set foot in a classroom. Born to survivalists in the mountains of Idaho, she prepared for the end of the world by stockpiling home canned peaches and sleeping with her head for the hills bag. As she grew older, she learned herbalism and midwifery from her mother, fully expected to assume her role in the community. It was an isolated and sometimes violent upbringing. Then lacking any formal education, and with the help of one of her older brothers, Tara began to educate herself. 
Eventually, she was admitted to Brigham Young University. She studied history, learning for the first time about important world events like the Holocaust and the Civil Rights Movement. And in this world, she excelled. Her quest for knowledge transformed her, taking her over oceans and across continents to Harvard and to Cambridge. It was only then that she wondered if she'd traveled too far, if there was still a way for her to get, go back home. Educated is an account of the struggle for self-invention. It is a tale of fierce family loyalty and of the grief that comes with severing of the, of the closest ties. Westover has crafted a universal coming-of-age story that gets to the heart of what an education is and what it offers. The perspective to see one's life through new eyes and the will to change it. It's a very big story, but also a very personal one. I love this book, and I, I didn't mention before. Obviously, it's it's nonfiction. This is a memoir, uh, so it's you know true as much as anyone's memories are true. So, how old is she now? Uh, she is in her thirties, I believe. Okay. I think she's in her early thirties. Uh, I love this book. By no stretch of the imagination did I grow up in anything close to her situation, but I did grow up with a similar thirst for learning and knowledge. So it wasn't too difficult to put me in her shoes and to wonder what I would do if I was stuck in that same sort of place. Her story was fascinating, empowering, and a reminder of how important education is and made me wonder uh, what other great minds and great discoveries are we missing and have missed because of the lack of universal education. Anyone who enjoys memoirs will enjoy this book. Lovers of stories about underdogs and the idea of the American dream will also like this book. It's a Horatio Alger, rags to riches kind of story that even though you know the ending, you still want to see how it, how, how it got there. So definitely highly recommend that one. Next is... One of my favorite books from, from the last couple of years, and probably of all time, which is called Cork Dork by Bianca Boxker from 2017. This fabulous book is a surprising, entertaining, and hilarious journey through the world of wine. Like many of us, tech reporter Bianca Boxker saw wine as a way to unwind at the end of a long day, or a nice way to have a dinner, and that pretty much was about it for her. Until she stumbled upon an alternate universe where taste reigned supreme, a world in which people could, after a single sip of wine, identify the grape it was made from, in what year and where it was produced down to the exact location, usually within acres. Where she tasted wine, these people detect, detected not only complex flavor profiles, but also the entire histories and geographies. Astounded by their fanatical dedication and seemingly superhuman sensory powers, Bosker abandoned her screen-centric life and set out to discover what drove their obsession and whether she too could become a cork dork. Thus begins a year-and-a-half-long adventure that takes the reader inside elite tasting groups, exclusive New York City restaurants, and a California winery that manipulates the flavor it follows with ingredients with names like Mega Purple, and even a neuroscientist's fMRI machine as Bosker attempts to answer the most nagging question of all, what's the big deal about wine? Funny, counterintuitive, and compulsively readable, Corkdork illuminates not only the complex web of wine production and consumption, but how tasting better can change our brains and help us live better lives. This book was a life-changing book for me, as some of the people who I talk to a lot, like Elizabeth, know. <laughs> I, uh, this book opened my eyes to the world of wine and it's in ways that I didn't imagine before. Grapes and winemaking have become a big passion in my life, and this book is partly responsible for that. So I talk about this book all the time, and I stick it. In, I do a Becky, and I stick <laughs> it in people's hands and tell people to read this book. Uh, 
I also I love non narrative nonfiction, which what this is, which is nonfiction books that are written sort of more like a novel rather than a, a, a you know a, a history book or something a that you might have picked book, for yeah. or a textbook. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's written so it's very readable. It's very much more enjoyable generally than most general nonfiction books are. Think of books like by Mary Roach or Susan Orlean, Mark Kurlansky, or even like Anthony Bourdain in terms of the food world. Uh, she looks at wine scientifically, historically, socially, and geekily, and does it in a, a fascinating way that makes you want to pop up on a bottle and join her on her adventures. So lovers of book, books about food and wine will definitely enjoy this. If you like narrative nonfiction, I mentioned before. Finally, people who like to read about science will, could also enjoy this book. She explores not only the science of taste, but also the often overlooked sense of smell that makes taste possible. Definitely read that one. I think if you don't get anything else from tonight, read that book. Hey. <laughs> just that just, just that. Okay, then the, the next one I'm doing is uh, Love and Ruin by Paula McClay, because it looks like we still have plenty of time. 2018, this is a novel. Having focused on Ernest Hemingway's first wife, Hadley Richardson, yeah, the book is buried under there. So in her in the first book, she talked about Hadley Richardson, Ernest Hemingway's first wife. Uh, this, that, that book came out in 2011. McLean turned to her th his third wife, a writer Martha Gellhorn, in this novel. As she did with Hadley and with Beryl Markham in Circling the Sun, which came out in 2015, McLean closely follows previously published biographical material to create her novel. A journalist who landed with the troops at Omaha Beach and the author of books of fiction and nonfiction as well as a play, Gellhorn is considered one of the most important war correspondents of the 20th century. In fact, she was, even though she was getting quite older, she was she went to Vietnam and did correspondence from there as well, towards the end of her career. The novel begins when she meets Hemingway in late 1936 in a Key West bar and follows a budding platonic relationship that eventually turns into a love affair. It is in Madrid, covering the Spanish Civil War, where she finds her calling as a journalist. With the war over, Martha joins Ernest for what seems to be an idyllic life in Cuba filled with writing and romance. However, by the time Martha marries Ernest in 1940, she worries that her husband's oversized personality, magnetism, and talent might crush her own spirit and her own ambition. Ultimately, they don't, but his selfish childishness, competitiveness, and vindictiveness make their relationship end. Martha comes across as a strong woman who will stand up for what she believes in, both for herself and for the world. Paula McLean is one of my favorite novelists, and I've loved all three of her historical novels, the three that we mentioned, I mentioned previously. For this book and for The Paris Wife, it didn't hurt that I'm a big Ernest Hemingway fan. Uh, I like his writing, and I'm fascinated by his all-too-human character for all its faults and flaws and everything else, which are many. Uh, <laughs> however, McLean's skillful writing and wonderful storytelling bring the characters, their stories, and the, their eras to life. Any writer who can do that is well worth reading. I would recommend this book to others and others to anyone who likes historical fiction, especially about the 20th century. I would also recommend them to anyone who likes novels centered around strong female characters in a male-dominated world. And last but not least, I will mention uh, Calypso by David Sedaris from 2018, the writer and humorist and NPR personality. If you've ever laughed, or, if you've ever laughed your way through us, David Sedaris is cheerfully misanthropic stories, and I know those two words are not ones you usually hear together, but it fits his work, and it's what you get in his latest, which is called Calypso. When he buys a beach house on the Carolina coast, Sedaris envisions long, relaxing vacations spent playing board games and lounging in the sun with those he loves most. 
life at the C-section, as he names the vacation home. Uh, yeah, it, it, you'll get a little sense of his sense of humor just from that if you haven't heard him before. Is, is exactly as he imagined, except for one tiny vexing realization. It's, all, it's impossible to take a vacation from yourself. So with Calypso, Sedaris sets his formidable powers of, of observation toward middle age and mortality. Make no mistake, these stories are very, very funny. It's a book that you can laugh out loud, and but not always at appropriate times. <laughs> Sedaris's powers of observation have never been sharper, and his ability to shock readers into laughter unparalleled. However, much of the comedy there is born out of the, uh, of the moment when your body betrays you, and you realize that the story of your life is made up more of your past than your future, which many of us at this table are heading towards. <laughs> This is beach reading for people who detest beaches, required reading for those who loathe small talk and love a good tumor joke. <laughs> and I'm thinking of you, Elizabeth. Yes, I love them. <laughs> She's laughing already. <laughs> it is simultaneously warm, dark, and hilarious. That's me in a nutshell. I know. It's, I could just write that in. There's the, there's the dictionary definition of Elizabeth. Sedaris' <laughs> books are hard to classify. They are a collection of pieces that may be best described, at least what I think of them, as what would happen if a short story and a humorous essay had a baby. Because <laughs> there, there, there's a lot of truth to them. There's a lot of fiction to them. It's hard to tell them apart which one's which, but they're always, always funny. He does all his own. He reads all his audiobooks. Right. You're, yeah, you're heading right into my next line. Oh, no, you're sorry. Fe no, you're feeding me just fine. I read both the book and listened to the audiobook because he is a great reader of his own material. And it's actually funny if you've heard, his, heard him read his material or heard him speak, when you read the book the next time, you hear, you hear his, his voice, voice exactly. every time. Mm -hmm. Literally, you can hear the cadence in his voice and how he says things. It's just, it's just, he's just one of the best readers I've. I don't do a lot of audiobooks, but his I love. His style is distinctly his own, and it works for me well. There aren't many writers who can make me a laugh out loud, but he does it every time. So David Sedaris's books certainly aren't to everyone's liking. There's always, you know, questionable materials in them. I said they're dark. They can be dark. Some people don't like dark as much. But if you like families, stories about families that are human and as crazy as most of our own are, then this book and his others would be good for you. If, if you like your humor snarking a bit on the dark side, then this book might also be for you. If you're not sure, I recommend listening first because I think that'll make it worthwhile. Yeah. So I'm going to pass it on to Austin. Uh, I'm going to start off with uh, Everything Under by Daisy Johnson. It's a spooky, lyrical novel set in a version of Oxford's world of canals and houseboats. An adult daughter is abruptly reunited with the mother who abandoned her, a mother who's now losing her mind, and forcing her to reckon with a strange childhood of monsters just out of sight, transient figures, prophecy, and a swirl of gender, identity, and memory. The book is a retelling of the Oedipus myth, but I don't feel like that's a spoiler because of just how deftly and unexpectedly Johnson handles that. I'd highly recommend this to fans of Shirley Jackson, Karen Russell, uh, Carmen Maria Machado, and moody British art in general. <laughs> My second pick is America Was Hard to Find by Kathleen Alcott. It's a very different novel, um, but, but just as beautiful. Sprawls over the latter half of the 20th century without ever delivering a sentence that isn't gorgeous. The story flows from an unlikely affair between an Air Force test pilot and a society girl in the Nevada desert, proceeds to touch on the space program, cults, the anti-war movement, the AIDS crisis, among many other things. It's a spacious, sweeping novel that manages to be intimate in its portrait of two frustrated people and the sun pulled along in their wake. It's a moving portrayal of the way dreams collide with life and how obsession and longing can make people and, and wreck them as well. Um, my th moving to nonfiction, Say Nothing by Patrick Radden Keith, Keith, 
this was a book I've been waiting for for years, ever since I read a piece he wrote about Belfast uh, in The New Yorker. Uh, he brings us the Troubles in Northern Ireland, which is the guerrilla war between Catholic paramilitary groups who wanted to unite with the Republic of Ireland and loyalist uh, paramilitary groups, as well as the British military. It centers particularly on Belfast in the 70s and 80s, bringing us the conflict in a novelistic way through the stories of a cast of fascinating characters. The book is animated by a mystery, The Disappearance of Jean McConville, a Catholic mother of 10 who was taken one night in 1972 and never seen again. It reads like the best true crime and manages to present the troubles in all its muddle and sadness and idealism gone awry. It also looks at the long aftermath of an event like the Troubles, how folks try to return to regular life and try and fail to make peace, try and sometimes fail to make peace with who they've been and what they've done. Highly recommend it to fans of true crime, history, and investigative journalism. Lastly is uh, Heavy by Kiese Lemon. Uh, it's a fierce memoir delivered as a direct address to Lemon's mother. Uh, it deals with growing up black in Jackson, Mississippi, becoming a writer, binge eating, gambling addiction, domestic violence, and, and much more. The characters of Lamon, his mom, and his grandmother are vivid and complicated. Uh, Lamon is one of the most honest, perhaps bravest writers I know of, uh, pushing past easy answers, pushing past the most comfortable versions of our stories to a level of honesty rarely seen. Uh, it's a book that makes you think about your own stories that you tell yourself as well as others and, and why you tell them that way. And, and what you might discover if you let go of those versions. Um, and I recommend that to people who like books like uh, Jesmyn Ward's The Men We Reaped, Ta-Nehisi Coates' Between the World and Me, uh, and the work of Roxane Gay. Very nice. I don't need that microphone. But it's not your turn. Oh, it's Jennifer's turn. She, she needs, needs the microphone. microphone. <laughs> there you go. Look at me being so patient. She's being really good. Have you good. ever seen this before? This is All like right. our first. All right, so... Do we have time for two or one? Um, you have time for three. Okay. I'm going to do probably two. Um, so uh, they're there. Our copies are both checked out. Um, this is by Tommy Orange. I believe it's his first novel. Native American author uh, lives in Oakland. And um, his story centers in Oakland, leads up to, it follows several characters and it all leads up to a powwow that's going to happen um, at the Oakland Coliseum, I think. And it's interesting. Uh, it starts out with a prologue that he's written, basically just a summation of the history of the Native American in the United States, um, and kind of centered around the um, the Indian head on the the TV test pattern and the buffalo nickel and the um, and there's a lot of satire in it and it it starts with that that image and then it runs into the story that is told in in pretty short chapters and each chapter is a different character and you have probably about a dozen characters and each each chapter is leading on to the 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 climactic ending, um, so there's some tension there, and and there is some there's some humor there, and um, and it's a variety of Native Americans with 
different backgrounds, experiences, ages. There's a, you know, a young man with fetal alcohol syndrome who is working with someone where there's, you know, we know, you know, early on that there's a, a robbery being planned to happen at this powwow. There's another woman who, as a child, um, spent some time on Alcatraz because uh, it was occupied by Native Americans in the late 60s. Um, and so it's giving a different view to me, especially of uh, the Native Americans, the urban Native Americans. It's, it's you know, we have, have our ideas of, of um, indigenous peoples living on reservations and having their, basically their homes. Um, and then these are people that are rooted in a city and the author um, or the, the title comes from Gertrude Stein, where she's talking about going back to her child home, childhood home of Oakland and seeing all the changes and realizing that there is no longer any there there. And so it's, it's an easy read. Well, not an easy read. It's a quick read, but it's not a light read. It's, you know, it makes you think a lot. There is some, you know, definitely some satire, some interesting history, and just a really full, colorful description of culture. So I, I definitely recommend it. There is violence, there's um, some language, um, but I recommend it to anybody who wants, you know, a quick, profound read um, and wants to learn something new. I thought it was a great book. I also brought, uh, my favorite thing is Monsters. So this is a graphic novel, and I love this book. It is by Emile Ferris, and um, I think this is her first graphic novel. Um, an interesting thing, she started writing this um, after she uh, contracted West Nile virus when she was 40 years old, and she started working on this as she was recovering. She was paralyzed from the waist down and had lost um, the use of her right arm, and so she started working on this as uh, as she was recovering. And I like it. It's um, basically a coming-of-age story. It's a murder mystery. It's a snapshot of 1960s Chicago and an artist sketchbook all in one. So you can kind of see on the, you know, it's it, we've got kind of the notebook notebook going here. Pages on the inside, it's all on, you can see the lines of the notebook paper. All this art was done with Bic ballpoint pens. It's told by a 12-year-old girl um, named Karen who has, uh, is a loves Pulp Fiction horror. And so throughout the book, you know, even as she's telling the story or she's talking about talking about things, you'll see her copies of different covers of the Pulp Fiction magazines that her brother buys. So they're they're pretty they're pretty amazing. But again, she's 12 year old 12, 12 year old girl and she kind of sees and draws herself, and this is her Karen, um, as a werewolf a detective werewolf. Um, and really it is about her just kind of um, making sense of her world as she's heading into puberty, as her family changes, uh, there's an illness in the family, and uh, the death of a neighbor who died under mysterious circumstances. Um, it's pretty It's pretty dark. Emile Ferris um, also kind of skipped the whole 
you know, there are some, if you're, you know, familiar with graphic novels or comic books, she kind of strays from the regular, you know, boxes. And so sometimes it's hard to follow. I know Becky has mentioned that, where sometimes it's hard to know where you're supposed to read next. And she kind of did that on purpose. And it really is like looking at somebody's sketchbook. But there's supposed to be a volume two. It's been pushed back. I think now it's being it's going to be coming out um, September of next year. This one had an interesting publishing history because it was supposed to come out, I think, in 2016. And then as it was being shipped, the freight company, the ch it was a Chinese freight company, went bankrupt. And so the whole boatload was seized in the Panama Canal. Whoa. And then they had to, I guess, find a new, <laughs> had to republish it or find a new publisher. It um, was actually published by, what is it, Fanta, Fantagraphics. Fantagraphics, which is a Seattle publishing company. So I'm really looking forward to volume two. If, you know, if you're at all interested in, in graphic novels, it is, it's a bigger one. That was another complaint of, you know, trying to find a publisher, publisher for this one. It's like, it's too big. <laughs> um, but it's, it's, I really like it. It's it's very it's very noir. Um, there is definitely some humor in there and some tough topics. Uh, it reminds me a little bit of Linda Berry, if you're familiar with her at all. And so you know, it's a little a little odd. Um, so if you like you know dark, odd, slightly funny things, you know, this is your book. And then if I'm going to do my third book, uh, the Enchan the Enchanted uh, was written by Renee Denfeld, who I believe is a an Oregon author. This is her first work of fiction. She wrote for the Oregonian. She mostly writes nonfiction. And this takes place in a prison on death row, like an old stone crumbling prison. And it's um, the narrator is one of the death row inmates. And he basically escapes his confines through books. And so he reads lots of books. Um, and he tells the story, the characters that that he you know runs into, or you know is aware of in the in the prison. Um, it's it's told kind of like a, a fairy tale, and nobody really has a name. There's there's the lady, and the lady is uh, she's an investigator, and she works to get prisoners off of death row. There's a fallen priest, and we don't really learn until later, you know, why he's the fallen priest. There's the warden. And the only one who really has a name is York, and he's one of the death row prisoners that the lady has been sent to help, but he doesn't want help. So, so there's there's the story of her, you know, finding his background, why, you know, how, you know, whether he is redeemable, whether he should be off of death row, even though he doesn't want to be. There's also just, there's a lot of, it's you know, magical realism in here. So there are, you know, the golden horses and, and there's little, you know, what did he call them? Chitter, fitter, uh, little little elves working in the wall. So there's just, I, it's, it's a definitely an unreliable narrator because you don't know exactly what he's talking about, but it's very dreamlike at, at times. Um, and it's very interesting how the story unfolds because as, she, as the lady is going out and learning about York's childhood and how he ended up where he is, 
you know, we're also learning about the lady and why she does the things that she does. And so um, definitely a story of redemption and really well-written, uh, poetic book. So um, definitely not an easy one. Again, it's death row prison, um, but, uh, but a very beautiful book. Thank you. Elizabeth. Wow. <laughs> guess I'll go now. Okay. Okay. So Becky and I had a little chat before the show about my books in particular because I read three of mine as audiobooks and so I wanted to kind of promote the audiobook as an option because I loved them very much and um, so I'm going to start with the two books that I actually read one was in book form, which is this Radical Candor, which is right in front of me. Um, and the other one is Useful Phrases for Immigrants, which was only available as an ebook, which means it was um, on my tablet, but not audio. So um, Radical Candor, with the uh, subtitle of Be a Kick-Ass Boss Without Losing Your Humanity by Kim Scott, was a really good book for anybody who is in a position of leadership who would like to improve their relationship with the people they supervise or with the people they work with um, without being a jerk. Because, you know, many times people are bosses, but then they're jerks. <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> but um, she actually talks about her time working for Google, where she went in there thinking she was cocky and she was it and she was all the boss that she needed to be, and nobody wanted to do anything with her, for her, or around her. And so she had to figure out, well, what is going on? Why am I not getting the response that I think I should be getting. Well, it was because she was a jerk. And so it teaches you little steps about how to relate to somebody without making them feel bad, without making them feel less, but making them understand that they have responsibilities and that they have expectations that they need to meet, but still respecting them as people, respecting their skills and abilities, and then actually promoting those skills and abilities to a higher level. So really a good book for anybody who wants to figure out a different way to relate to other people in a way that is honest, because I have a problem about I can't not tell you what I'm thinking. <laughs> and so this book was really good for me because it was, I still need to tell you what I'm thinking about what's going on and what we're doing together, but I need to do it in a way where you understand I'm not being critical of you. I'm just being honest with you and you need to be honest back at me for this relationship to work. So I liked it quite a bit. So if there's anybody in human resources or who have finds themselves in a leadership role where they're a little bit lost about how to relate to other people, I think it would be a great book. Um, the other one that I read that was um, read read <laughs> was called Useful Phrases for Immigrants and this is what the cover looks like. This is a book of short stories and I actually talked about this already on Your Shelf or Mine but I liked it quite a bit so it's um, having a comeback. Um, it is all short stories written by Mei Li Chai, and it is about being a Chinese immigrant in the United States, and many times a second generation. So she wasn't actually the immigrant, but her parents immigrated, and so she is living a life of an immigrant, although she was born here. And so she's trying to, to fit in and relate, and relating the stories of how her parents had to navigate their new world 
trying to live their old lives. So um, there were several stories in here that were heartbreaking. I mean, completely heartbreaking, where you had to watch a family completely completely disintegrate to nothing. And they started out so strong when they were in China, and then they came to the United States, and now it, their family is ruined. It's just completely ruined. And then there are others where you, you just, it's kind of like your David Sedaris, where you just laugh out loud and just like, what? What? <laughs> what did I just read? That's crazy. But it's uh, a bunch of short stories that some are short, some are long, some are very, very deep, some are very, very lighthearted, but definitely a good read for anybody who likes to read about different cultures coming into a new world and short stories. And who doesn't like short stories? I love them. <laughs> we really like short stories. <laughs> <laughs> the nice thing, too, about short stories is that you can come back to it. So if you read a few short stories, you can always come back to it and finish yeah. the rest. If you set it down, you don't have to start at the beginning again. Exactly. You pick it back up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then the other thing about short stories that I feel no guilt is if I don't like it, I just don't read that story. Becky would feel guilt about that, but I don't. <laughs> <laughs> so um, now I'm going to talk about three of the um, audiobooks that I listen to, and I'm going to save my favorite for last. So the next one I'm going to talk about is called The Library of Lost and Found, and that's what the cover looks like. And this is by Phaedra Patrick. Now, the reason I read this book was because I had read The Curious Charms of Arthur Pepper by the same author. And so I'm bringing them both up because I did listen to both of them. Um, This one made it to the podcast last year. Mm -hmm. And so this one, actually this wasn't for the podcast. I just read it because I had read the um, previous. And I'm going to make a, you know, I'm going to make a judgment here. I liked this Curious Charms of Arthur Pepper better than I did The Library of Lost Things, but The Library of Lost Things has a completely different feel to it where um, the author or the, the protagonist it works at a library. So, of course, you I got to read that, right? <laughs> and she um, has a hard life of living um, in her library world where she's actually not even employed there. She just does a lot of voluntary activities, runs programs, runs the book club um, in the hopes of getting a job there and they keep passing her over for other people and so it's a very sad horrible existence that this woman lives and then she lives alone because she quit her whole life to go take care of her ailing parents and then her parents died and now she's alone and her house is covered with all of her parents old stuff and so she's just living she just exists she has no life And the one thing that she really wants is to work at that library, and she can't even get that, even though she gives every bit of herself to that. So this is kind of a story about a woman who has given everything to everyone else and lost herself along the way. And so it's how she finds herself. So it's the library of lost and found, because she starts out super lost, and in the end, good things start to happen. Spoiler alert? No. (laughs) It just... um... I haven't read either of these, but I've heard about them. It Mm -hmm. seems like it has a lot of the same themes as this other one. Yeah, The Curious Charms of Arthur Pepper was very cute. It was um, not cute. I'm going (laughs) to rephrase that because it starts off when this man's wife dies. And so that's not cute, right? But as he goes through all of her stuff to take to their version of Goodwill, because this takes place in um, uh, the UK. The UK. (laughs) Um, But Arthur finds... 
a charm bracelet with all of these strange charms hidden in one of his wife's old shoes. And he doesn't recognize any of the charms except for one he knows that came from his kids. And so he goes through all of these charms and tracks down where each one of them came from and learns something new about this woman he'd spent his whole life with that he never knew about her. And then he constantly was wondering, well, why is this woman with me? Why, why, after all of this life? And so it ends with him coming to the end of this journey after learning all of these secrets about this woman that he thought he knew. So it's actually a pretty good story, yeah. And and I listened to both of these, and they were written, or they were read by two different uh, narrators, but they were both very well done. So the next one... Is this my la- oh, is Word by Word, which is a book about a dictionary. <laughs> so this one is nonfiction. Well, it's a memoir uh, per se. It's by um, Corey Stamper, and she reads this herself. So as you are listening to her, it is Corey who is reading the story to you, which makes it so much better because she can tell you how she feels right now about what she's reading. But it, she is a lexicographer at the Merriam-Webster Dictionary Publishing House, and so all she does is write entries for dictionaries and writes words. And for me, that is amazing because I love words and where they come from and how you say them. (laughs) So if you're very, very dorky about the words that you use, this book is for you, big time. Yeah, she talks, it's hilarious because the similarities were were uncanny in some cases where she'll collect things from menus um, where there are errors in the language or where there is a new definition of something she'd never heard that word used that way before and she'll collect them and she'll take them back to work and she'll rewrite the entry for the dictionary based on these things of current usage in, in the community. So word by word, I really liked that one quite a bit. Now, my favorite audiobook is the one I just finished yesterday, and it is actually on order. We don't even have it yet here in the library, but it is Acid for the Children, which is the memoir by Flea from the Red Hot Chili Peppers. (laughs) Now, that all by itself is pretty funny. <laughs> but um, what was amazing... Now, if you don't know the Red Hot Chili Peppers, you need to know that there's a lot of drug use, a lot of ridiculous behavior, a lot of things that have happened during... He's a rock star, and he lived that lifestyle as fully as he possibly could. Um, and so there's a lot of things in his background that are unsavory, but sometimes quite entertaining. (laughs) But he wrote it and read it, and it was amazing the depth of feeling that he was able to put into his stories. And the reason that I enjoyed it very, very much was at the very beginning, he spends several tracks of this, you know, chapters talking about the love and respect he had for his grandma. It's amazing how much this man respected and loved and followed everything that his grandma did. And you read that and you're just like, fine, I'm going to read the whole thing. It's pretty good. (laughs) It was amazing. And and as as he started to get older and older and older, he had a rough life with a lot of, of strange things that happened to him that made him who he is. And so you kind of understand a little better 
better um, the red hot chili pepper attitude. Um, but it was it was really really touching to hear how much feeling he has been able to put into this and his writing. The one thing that I loved about this that I did not know and I don't know anybody knows it is this man and his sister spent hours reading books together when they were little and for a very long time they would share their books and they would talk about their books and books really helped shape his entire life and that I mean for for us well yeah of course that's amazing so I would very very highly recommend fleas acid for the children <laughs> and if you like rock stars if you like memoirs about celebrities it's a good story it really is so those are mine but I have a bonus don't I yeah okay <laughs> I'll do that one really quickly so it's on your list is it this one yeah all right so this one is called her body and other parties and we've, it's Carmen Maria Machado we've talked a lot about this one on the podcast also because we love it so much it is an excellent short story book and it has some stories in there again and Austin can help us talk about it too because he also enjoys it and she has another book coming out this month or early next month her, her new her, book is a memoir. memoir is coming out for her but um, there was one story that Becky and I just laughed and laughed and laughed because it goes on forever <laughs> and ever and ever. And it's a it's a retelling of um, Law & Order Special Victims. <laughs> it's a, and, a complete oh, retelling of the show That Law went on Order forever. And, it's still on. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, I guess, yeah. It's called Especially Heinous. And it's like recaps of every episode. Oh my gosh, it's hilarious! And and she was telling me about some reviews she had had read um, that said that you know this story isn't isn't all that cool For or anything. Yeah, pages. yeah, exactly. And sh and she and I were like, well, they totally missed the mark on that one because she's making fun of how long that series has been, and this story is hilarious. So we thought that it was great, and that <laughs> reviewer was wrong. It's so. just like it starts off sounding like a real recap of a show, right? And then it, as you read, it gets like it more and more absurd. <laughs> and then at a certain point, you're like, I'm really tired of this story. And then she keeps going. So it becomes like, oh my gosh, really? And she, th that she reminds takes the joke too so, far. <laughs> so long that it's just hilarious. Right it in. is. It really is. But this one, this one is definitely, the stories on this are, are strong stories. These are, are emotional stories. These have uh, quite a punch. Um, so the difference between this one and Useful Phrases for Immigrants, I'd say this is a little bit harder to read than Useful Phrases for Immigrants because Maybe it was a little, a little lighter. Mm -hmm, a little edgier. Yeah. That's my opinion. And I'm sticking to it. Yeah, but it was it was really, really great. <laughs> yeah. Um, so she's got her memoir coming out this month. So we haven't read it yet, but we would definitely recommend giving it a shot just based on how good this was. Mm -hmm. So, so those are mine. That's all our books. Now, if you don't have Washington Anytime Library or Hoopla on your devices yet, you really should get those because all of those audiobooks I checked out on one of those platforms. I am a great fan of audiobooks because I get really tired of listening to what's on the radio or I get really um, tired of keeping my eyes open. <laughs> And so I'll just put a book on and I will, I'll cook while I'm listening to the book. I'll do house chores or, or, you know, just hang around over at my desk listening to <laughs> books. <laughs> I mean, whenever you have the opportunity to listen to them, they're available. So 
I recommend them very highly if you haven't already started using them. Yeah, well, so thank you guys for spending some time with us. We really appreciate you yeah. coming in here. And, and if you haven't started listening to Your Shelf or Mine, we do book recommendations and reviews every single time. So feel free to, to download Spotify or whatever platform. And you can actually go to the library's webpage and just listen from there if you want. We have some buttons in the back. Yeah, so get tell a button. You, yeah, tell your friends. I took my button off somewhere oh and gave it to gosh. somebody. Well, so that's one thing that we have started doing is anytime we start talking about the podcast, we take our button off our lanyard and give it to the person just so they remember. Yeah. It's <laughs> called branding. It's branding. Yeah. So we're, we're heavily promoting. <laughs> um, and thanks to Jennifer and Chris and Austin. Thank you guys. For being here with us. Yeah. Quality time. That's what this was. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we're going to hug here in a minute. Elizabeth doesn't hug. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you guys very much. Bye. Studio time for Your Shelf or Mine is donated by KLOG, Cooking Country, and 1015 The Wave. We at the Longview Public Library thank our local stations for their ongoing support. Your Shelf or Mine jingle is written and performed by Megan McKeldry from A Song for You. Find Megan on Facebook or Twitter at Meg McKeldry or online at ReverbNation.com slash Megan McKeldry. That's M-E-A-G-H-A-N-M-C-E-L-D-E-R-R-Y. ReverbNation.com slash Megan McKeldry.